Welcome back to the Groundless Ground Podcast, the leading edge of mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Remember, you can now subscribe to and download the Groundless Ground on your favorite podcast app or listen on YouTube, Spotify, and TuneIn. David Vago is Research Director of the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine and Director of the Contemplative Neuroscience and Integrative Medicine Laboratory at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He is an Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Department of Psychiatry. Dave's longtime research appointment in the Functional Neuroimaging Laboratory at Harvard Medical School gave rise to his SART model for mapping the meditative mind. His research focuses on the healing effects of meditative practices for a variety of mental health and physical pain disorders. Three years ago, Dave and I recorded in-depth dialogues on awakening, which you can still see on my YouTube channel. This conversation is a neuroscience of mindfulness update. Dave offers clarity on what mindfulness is, what it is not, what it can do and cannot do, and what is known about effective prescribing and dosing of meditative practices. Dave, this is so great. We have not actually done a dialogue. I think it's been three years since we did the extended discussion Uh on awakening, what that means. I'm very happy to have you here. Your entire life has changed. That's true. Since the last time we spoke, I did leave the big crimson shield behind. I think people don't know what you mean by the big crimson shield. It's the academic pillar that is recognized everywhere. The Harvard Medical School, that was where my academic appointment was. It definitely had a lot of impact on me, but to be honest, it's better left on your CV. I've been very happy with my move and transition to Vanderbilt University, where I am now directing research at the Osher Center for Integrated Medicine. And that's been fantastic. It not only allowed me to create my own lab here, which is the Contemplative Neuroscience and Integrative Medicine Lab, but to direct the research that's being done in the integrative clinic. Um, So there's a lot of clinical research that's being done, aside from my own interest in sort of the basic sciences of contemplative practice and meditation. I get to be much more broad in terms of how we paint a picture for the benefits and exploring mechanisms and outcomes related to integrative health, mind-body practices. I couldn't be more happy here. And a lot certainly has shifted since then, not only for me, but also in the field. We wrote this big paper that got a lot of uh, attention, which was Mind the Hype. You probably saw that one. People got stirred up where a bunch of mindfulness researchers are there actually commenting that a lot of The ongoing research has certainly been encouraging, but it's being oversold by much of the news media relative to the available scientific evidence supporting its benefits. So that's why we felt compelled to write that critical evaluation of literature and also a prescriptive agenda. What's the best way forward? Tempering some of the hype, pointing out some of the limitations, but not to be discouraging. Newsweek magazine totally misquoted me. They said mindfulness is a shoddy word with little science to back it up. I wasn't trying to say that the mindfulness research is bad, just that it's very young. There needs to be more rigorous studies done. There has to be studies that focus on mechanism, that optimize interventions and the dosage by which we 
prescribe these practices, how we identify which populations are going to benefit. Those are the things that just need to be expanded upon. It's encouraging when you look at the over 6,000 articles with mindfulness or meditation in the title or abstract since the year 2000. Out of those, much of it is pilot or initial studies without an active control, waitlisted comparisons. So it's really hard to get a sense of what mindfulness is really doing in, across populations using different you know, modes of delivery. That could be an eight-week model, it could be a mobile app, or it can be some modified version of, of something in between. Either way, all those 6,000 articles are showing benefits left and right for every possible ailment. But the effect sizes are very weak, the comparisons aren't very good, but that's what you get when you start a field. You start somewhere to show that there is some benefit from doing the practice. And then you have to compare it to the standards of care, show how it's better, who it's better for. And then we can optimize those interventions by looking at mechanism. You know what I love about you and how you approach this, which is unusual. You are not only doing the neurobiology piece, you're interested in the brain, but you're also eminently qualified to do the actual mental health aspects, not just what it does, but possibly maybe finding out which dosage, which treatment, which practices might be specific to certain populations with certain mental health maladies and physiological maladies as well. With physical, physiological etiology, you being at Vanderbilt and at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine makes so much sense now. No, it's funny because I am trained as a cognitive neuroscientist and most of what happens here, the people who come here, we have a wait list that's months out and that's only for the people who are in great need. You know, the worried well don't even have a chance to see a provider here. And that's unfortunate because that's where we should be starting. But the people who come here are at the bottom of the medical system barrel, so to speak, meaning they've been to every doctor already. Everyone's dismissed them and said that they don't have a way to understand the pain that they're experiencing. There's no way to understand how it even relates to their history of trauma, which we know it does. Their psychological issues and anxieties are completely interrelated with their physical pain. No one's able to help them except for the integrative practitioners and providers that focus on those types of people with chronic pain and a history of trauma. That's like the most common complaint here is that you have dramatic pain and fatigue and anxiety associated with that. For some reason, it has a lot to do with a history of trauma. And I think we're just starting to make those connections. This is my patient population. There's so much connection between mind and body when there is a history of trauma, especially if it's many years out. Over the years, it's been processed in a way that becomes maladaptive, right? You know, from my perspective, I have focused a lot of my research over the last few years using a framework of self-processing to better understand the transformation that occurs through contemplative practice. When we go from both the Buddhist and contemporary models of suffering, for example, we can understand that suffering originates and ends with how the self is constructed uh, to experience itself and its surroundings um, and relation to the world. If we start with that premise, 
from a neurobiological point of view, I can say, well, here are the neurobiological substrates of selfing, of how we create the self over time, which maps onto a lot of the Buddhist models of, say, the five skandhas, which okay. you've talked about in your podcast before or mentioned at least in your book, The Effortless Mindfulness. It's a great model for how we can understand how self is constructed in a medical model by deconstructing components of aspects of the self, which is just mental habits, we can better understand how emotion dysregulation happens and how it leads to chronic inflammation. And then we have chronic pain, uh, anxiety associated with that. So it, there can be a very clear ideology that is very integrative because it, it really speaks to the whole individual rather than one organ system. And that may be the key of integrative medicine as an emerging approach to healthcare focuses on or emphasizes the whole individual rather than one system. I don't go to my orthopedist with just my knee or hip pain or some nonspecific chronic low back pain. You have to get a sense of what's happening in my life to give me this low back pain, not just how I sit or how I type. What are the emotions that are driving why I'm so tense all the time? And does it have anything to do with my past history of trauma or that narrative enters into the treatment. For example, in our clinic, you come in, you see a nurse practitioner or an MD for an intake, which gets a sense of what's going on. And then you can be sent over to our psych team who has mindfulness-based approaches integrated into their practice, as well as receiving body work with our lymphatic drainage specialist or someone who just does deep tissue massage or someone who does acupuncture. And then if you want to move into body movement practices, we have Tai Chi and yoga. By that point, you've already gone through so many different treatment modalities to focus on every aspect of the individual. All the while, the goal is to maintain some sort of consistency across the modalities that you're being treated with to promote health and well-being. And the goal is really human flourishing. It's a good model for the clinic. From my perspective as a neurobiologist or cognitive neuroscientist, I try to identify what the mechanisms are functioning to improve those outcomes so that we could then inform the interventions to engage those mechanisms more, like say self-regulation. I'll just give you one example. With my SART model, I've talked about how mindfulness can address self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-transcendence. One of the mechanisms by which we thought mindfulness functions is inhibitory control or behavioral inhibition. It's the way of putting the wedge between stimulus and response, which we know mindfulness is very good at doing. Take all that information that's coming in, instead of just responding right away, reactively, we have a moment to reflect with wisdom and compassion for ourselves and others, and then to respond. That little shift, that inhibitory mechanism to stop before reacting is a mechanism that we could examine, see if it mindfulness engages. And if it does, we can then focus on building these interventions like mindfulness-based stress reduction even and enhance them to focus on improving inhibitory skills to enhance outcomes. And that's just one example of how we can optimize treatment modalities like MBSR. Some of the contemplative practices that you mentioned when you were going through the interventions that your patients are offered at the OSHA Center? Yeah. Most of them, Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga, any kind of concentration or choiceless awareness practice, train people in how to be able to attend 
to what's actually arising, which of course creates that spaciousness. It doesn't really matter what you're attending to. It could be anything. It's experiential focus and this flip from the narrative that for the most part, the patients you're talking about, their narratives are habitual and reactive and distorted, but also narratives that have helped them get through. This is the characterological and defensive structures that they've invented when they were young to try to survive adverse childhood environments and traumatic experience. Everything that you've mentioned so far to me falls under inflammation. <laughs> Different ways of inflammation showing up in the system, whether it's self-related processing, emotion, cognition, whether it's the symptoms, depression, ADHD, whether it's your low back pain or your fibromyalgia pain, whatever it is, your heart disease, gastrointestinal problem. Exactly. And inflammation, we have to remember, and we're still trying to understand inflammation as a mechanism also for adaptive and maladaptive outcomes. So we know that when you have stress, inflammatory response is part of the stress response. It's, it's the way to effectively deal with a stressor. You release these inflammatory cytokines to help deal with the stress hormones like cortisol that are being released that have adverse effects on different organ systems as well as brain systems like memory and how you process emotion. The inflammatory response is very relevant for managing a stress response. It's a positive type of response, but it only manifests as something maladaptive when it stays on, perseverates, through the rest of your day and doesn't really come back to some baseline relatively quickly after the threat is gone. That's the key is the recovery is not there. That's where we're starting to see some of the benefits of mindfulness. It improves this ability to come back to some sort of baseline more rapidly. I love that equanimity study. Moving beyond mindfulness to finding equanimity as an outcome measure in meditation and contemplative research. Definitely in Google Scholar. I've really found the best work I do is usually collaborative in nature with a group of researchers that I've been working with. Since I was working with Mind and Life as their senior research coordinator for a couple of years, and then I'm moving to Boston, there was a lot of researchers doing the similar types of work. So mm -hmm. Sarah Lazar and her group were the main group that I was working with. With Sarah was Britta Holtzel and Tim Gard. And then there's Gael Desbord, who was just moving from Emory, Liz Hoagie, who was the clinician looking at mindfulness and anxiety, Zev Schumann-Olivier, who also was looking at clinical levels of addiction. And then Judd Brewer was down the road. He was in New Haven at the time. Mm -hmm. And Willoughby Britton was at Brown. And we would just meet regularly and talk because we wrote a series of papers that we all had equal authorship and put out statements about mechanisms, more theoretical papers that really set the groundwork for studying mindfulness and meditation practices. The equanimity piece is so important because it's equivalent to non-stickiness, which is everything you've been talking about, is that recovery, resilience, to not hold on to mental phenomena, emotional upwellings, even physical responses beyond the point at which they would naturally fall away on their own. Equanimity is that state in which it's not just mind, 
It's the entire identity of the individual. It's a level of understanding about phenomena and their nature to arise, exist, and pass away on their own. So the level of aversion, which somebody would normally be holding on to around a difficult experience, whatever that might be, or phenomena, it's just not there. You know, there's this less affective stickiness. Yeah. Mindfulness doesn't operate on its own. It's not just the present moment, present-centered focus of attention that will cure us of everything. <laughs> in fact, John Kabat-Zinn's definition, paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally, has been very well received and very easy to implement. I've had to write these IRBs for sixth to eighth grade reading levels, and that definition is about sixth to eighth grade reading level. I think it fits. It makes sense. People understand it. They can identify with it. It's helpful. But in a research context, it's very difficult to say that that is how we operationalize the factors that are transforming or that are being used or implemented or cultivated during contemplative practice. Sati or mindfulness often described as a state of meta-awareness or awareness alone can also have elements of discernment. And this is where it gets tricky because it becomes a semantic minefield. When clinicians start talking about the difference between discernment and judgment, well, from a cognitive point of view, discernment and judgment are the same thing. So if you're non-judgmental, that's basically saying there's no discernment because you can't be using judgment evaluation at all. But when you talk about the subtle differences of overvaluation or evaluative processing in inappropriate contexts, like when you're trying to complete another task, if you're trying to uh, write a paper or can just write an email or just you know, have a conversation with somebody and suddenly your mind is somewhere else, that is the kind of judgment that John is referring to that is not helpful for you. What we find, of course, is that most of the time when we do that mind wandering, it's always in some self-reflective, negative, ruminative process. But discernment is a form of judgment or evaluation that is wisdom-based, right? Indeed. It has this element of knowing that is immediate. Alan Wallace, a Buddhist scholar, talks about discernment like you take a grain of salt, put it on your tongue, and immediately you know that it is salt and not sugar. It's still a form of evaluation, and it's based on previous experience from the Buddhist literature, you would call it sampajanya. There's certainly debate around this, you know, I've asked John Dunn to expand upon this because it's a problem in the literature. You know, what's the value of judgment? Because there is value. One of the things that maybe you can relate to around this question is frame and context. Uh -huh. One of the big problems with mindfulness, quote unquote, research is that the frame and the context are missing what I call embodiment. When salt goes on your tongue, the actual nervous system and the bodily functions that have nothing to do with the 10% that's cognitive. This is the 90% zombie subsystems that are doing whatever they're doing and have all this wisdom. They know it's salt. They may not know the word salt. They know whether they like it, whether they don't like it. All this processing is happening without a self, like the self we think of as an identity self. It's a minimal self-existence that just is part of the human condition. And we're so fixated on our personal identities and the story of everything that this beauty, and this is the beauty that I'm continually reintroducing my patients to, 
the beauty of basic human existence, which is so simple, liberating, open, that it is a level of, I think, what John means by non-judgment. I think he means naturalness. And it's too bad he didn't actually go there. But of course, the frame back then, 30 years ago, was a Western psychological frame, which was mind only. There wasn't really a body. He used what was appropriate at the time. But thankfully, you're in the midst of the huge shift where the body, the nervous system, it's going to get top billing now. And I see John at retreats sometimes, which I saw in the background. You have a little picture of Sokni Rinpoche. And, and Ninja Rinpoche. I'll see him sometimes at Choking Nima's retreats, and, mm-hmm. and we go into these great discussions. I, I really value having those moments with him, but he keeps saying, you know, I never intended mindfulness to be anything other than a way of being. This is supposed to be a non-dual way of being. Well, he comes from the Soto Zen tradition huh? and the yogic tradition, and I know he's being genuine when he says this. That was his karmic assignment, right? That's how he describes it. How to share the essence of all these contemplative trainings through not only the concept of mindfulness, but how to bring it in a way that all hospitals and medical centers can use it as a practical path to liberation from suffering. And let's both bow. John was the first person to work with the population of patients we're talking about. Exactly. The doctors were like, I don't have anything for you. I don't know what's wrong with you. And his he told me once. They sent them down to the basement so Saki and I could see if we could do something with them. Right. You know, you hear these stories all the time. These are the people you work with, right? My nurse practitioner med team reported to me this great example of a patient who had terrible hives. They would break out in hives all their life since they can remember back to adolescence and mostly in social context. Anytime he was around people, dramatic hives that were so uncomfortable that he could never really function around social settings. Apparently he saw my TED talk, which was just something about my inspiration for doing this type of work. It got him thinking about mindfulness and he never thought about it before tried it and started practicing regularly and he no longer breaks out and hides around social context. This is just a simple example. People who have chronic pain from a spinal injury, for example, and they've gone through every spinal surgeon, people who have fused discs or fused vertebrae and done all types of surgical procedures to no avail and they're still suffering and they start practicing these meditation techniques and their pain disappears. That is amazing to hear these reports, right? And so there's something to that. Let's be clear now. What disappears is the fixation on the fact that they have pain. It's what you pointed to earlier, not holding on because they're in the actual somatic experience, the physical arising, what's actually showing up in their system. They're doing it interoceptively and they realize it's not pain. Okay, maybe it's heat. Heat's not painful. Maybe it's a little bit of tingling. Maybe it's all kinds of things, but it's not adding up to the story they've been telling themselves about continuing horrible pain. Exactly. That narrative is profound when you start to understand how the narrative that you feed yourself is constructing yourself in a maladaptive way. The Buddhist model talks about the self. The whole no self doctrine is about really, you know, rejecting the idea of a permanent unchanging self, understanding how the self is constructed and gaining awareness of that, 
the Dhammapada, and I quote this all the time, our life is shaped by our mind, where we become what we think. Whatever you feed your narrative with, that's essentially what will manifest in the body. Uh, and so we're, I think we're finally starting to see that that's beyond woo-woo. My home department is physical medicine and rehabilitation. Of course. That's my primary appointment. When you talk to these pain docs, they're used to people who are recovering from major injuries, major, let's say, spinal injuries or knee injuries or shoulder injuries. And so they see dramatic shifts in acute pain responses after surgery and recovery. What they don't understand is what to do with the patient that isn't recovering that has unspecified or non-specific pain that makes no sense to them from a purely physical perspective. We fixed the broken bone and the pain should no longer be there. So why is it there? You should speak to a pain psychologist. They're concerned about bringing up the subject with a patient that the pain is in your head. Well, that's the only way we can just explain it to you at this point. And you know, they should be concerned because that's not true. I bet you, if you handed a trauma checklist to every one of those pain docs and yeah. you said, have your patient fill out the trauma checklist of yeah. traumatic experience you've had. And I guarantee you the people who are not recovering are the people who already have systems that have been altered yeah. by traumatic experience and they either went way over threshold with this major injury that somebody who didn't have that would recover from. There's a correlation. It's not only in their mind. It's not. The integrative view. Nobody's talking about how to help your mind deal with that trauma and deal with the recovery. And these pain docs are saying very clearly, oh, we don't want it telling you that it's all in your head. Of course, we don't believe that. If, you don't, if you're something psychogenic, is dismissed. You have to have the mind and the body working together to heal. We're just starting to demonstrate how important having a stable, well-regulated mind is to that healing process, how to integrate that traumatic experience into a more resilient way of coming back to your baseline. That's starting to enter into the medical model, but we still have a long way to go. Well, that's why we have you. You know, I'm part of the academic consortium for integrated medicine, and that consortium has been building up a lot of influence in most contemporary medical settings. Everyone is trying to better understand how to deal with you know, chronic pain and the opiate crisis, for example. Of course. Integrated medicine suddenly has the answers um, because nobody else does. All the pain docs and all the post-surgical outcome people are saying, we need improved outcomes because nobody's getting better and the opiates aren't helping. $78.5 billion a year of economic burden related to prescription opioid misuse. Frankly, somebody told them, many physicians told them, that opioids actually are good for pain. Advil and Tylenol are much better for actual pain than opiates. And that goes back to what this pain doc said to me, which was, I don't feel comfortable telling the patient that it's all in your head. And I said to the guy, you know, it's not about being all in your head, but it's a major factor that you need to incorporate into your treatment. And if you don't, you're not going to have great outcomes. No, it's not all in their head. And there is some way that the mind is impeding their ability to heal. Yeah. It's not all in their mind. And there are certain things you can actually either prescribe or you could do right there with them to show yeah. them 
very quickly that that's true. I mean, it's not a hard thing to show of somebody. Right, right. I do it all day long in my office. And there you go. When the pain docs aren't trained themselves right. in how to use integrative or mind-body health practices, they don't know anything about it. They just sort of dismiss it as just placebo effects and the integrative approach, which is we're going to focus on healing your body, giving you the cast, giving you the PT, but also acupuncture, yoga, meditation, all together. Mm-hmm. And that's the integrative approach. It works so well. I now have psychiatrists sending me their patients so they can get off of clonopin. Oh, man. Because the whole idea of getting off clonopin for many patients is so scary because that is one of the most addictive drugs that we've got. Almost all of them were put on it for anxiety. Of course. They send me their patients so that I can actually introduce them and get them doing yoga nidra, qigong practice, sitting practice if they like it, but on a daily basis, exercise, which frankly is almost better than anything. And then two months with me, they're totally ready to start the long, and I mean sometimes in some cases, a year and a half to two years process of coming off that drug. Because the psychiatrists know without anything in place, these people can't get off of it. Take this benzodiazepine and your central nervous system should be depressed enough that you won't ruminate too much. (laughs) It's true. One of the first things I say to them is all they're doing is regulating in some way your central nervous system. I can give you tools that will not only regulate in the moment, but over time, you'll have the capacity to allow the system to regulate on its own the way it was designed to do. Your system's just lost that regulatory capacity. How lovely that you're in an environment where you have influence. I'm excited about being in a very clinical setting. I still, of course, have to play the game of academia and grants to support very NIH-driven questions. For example, the questions that we're asking right now, what is a mindfulness-based intervention? Nobody is answering that question very well, and and we have this eight-week model. What's to say that two or three sessions with you one-on-one isn't going to be more effective than an eight-week group? It is more effective, but that's only because I can target and titrate for what's happening to the person. I see more than enough people who come to me after having done an eight-week intervention, either at Kaiser or wherever, also MBSR. It's too general for them. It doesn't get to what they need and what's shown up for them in their life. If you can be targeted, the work goes very fast, honestly. That's so interesting um, that you say that because I think that's been some of the problem. First of all, the good thing about having a model like the eight-week MBSR is that There's fidelity behind it and the way it's delivered, the content that's the curriculum can be matched across sites. And that's been really helpful for doing traditional compared effectiveness trials for looking at MBSR in various clinical contexts. And we can say that the way that mindfulness is being delivered, if it's done consistently, is also having effects on different outcomes. That kind of speaks to some of the work I've been doing with the Mindfulness Research Collaborative. We are a pretty great group of researchers and practitioners. We have one of these largest grants from the government to dismantle mindfulness-based practices in order to identify what are the key mechanisms driving change from the perspective of behavioral change. We focus a lot on the health relevance of how do we 
manage our emotional resources to accomplish goals? What's the ability to have improved medical regimen adherence? This is the kind of behavioral change that at least the NIH is very interested in. But our goals have been equally to identify the mechanisms by which mindfulness-based interventions function to increase self-regulation and what outcomes and assays are targeted during these interventions. By looking at over 10,000 screened studies that have the keywords of meditation and mindfulness in there, uh, we came down to about 140 studies with a very specific criteria of MBSR and MBCT. So many of these studies modify the length to be yeah. at least 15 to 20 contact hours with patients. There has to be at least a half-day retreat, which was really hard to do in clinical settings because that's usually not covered by insurance. Group-based format, the very specific core mindfulness-based practices, which were a body scan, concentration meditation practice, an open monitoring type of practice, and some light hatha yoga. When we look at all of the studies that have all that criteria, there's not a lot out there that show improvements across different domains like emotion regulation, cognition, and self-related processing are the three domains we looked at. I'll just go through some of what we found. For self-related processing, skills related to seeing self as object or subject, anything that involves self-evaluation, self-monitoring, self-efficacy, or the opposite, which would be rumination, low self-esteem. The constructs that actually emerged out of a focus on self-related processing were self-compassion, self-related rumination, self-praise, self-worth, self-criticism, meta-awareness or decentering. And these are all self-report measures? All of them, yes. Now, there have been a few objective attempts looking at self-related processing. We did one study with an Israeli group from the University of Haifa trying to get at different aspects of self-related processing. We can focus on two maladaptive forms of processing, so identification with experience, internal states, thoughts, emotions, sensations as integral parts of the self, and negative self-referential judgment of experience where you assign self-referential value or interpretation to an experience. And then the flip side would be processing present moment experience without self-referentiality. So just pure meta-awareness uh, without clinging to any particular experience of that or relating it to the self. No interpretation or elaboration. Experiential focus, allowing phenomena to come and go in the field of awareness. Exactly. And what we did with one of uh, my students that you know, I've been mentoring from HIFA is try to create this objective way of showing them different emotional scenarios, identify how they respond to those scenarios with uh, a measure. There's a measure called the implicit attitudes task. And that was modified by this group to assess the meta-awareness without or with identification. And we found that you can do that objectively. The greatest outcomes were comparisons that focused on a mindfulness-based intervention versus some control that looked at either self-compassion, which is Kristen Neff's construct. These mindfulness interventions have no self-compassion skills. Yeah, they don't focus on that. I'm just being very clear for the clinicians listening because there's self-compassion training. These eight-week mindfulness-based interventions, meta or loving-kindness practices introduced once. It's amazing. And often it isn't introduced at all. And yet, here you are saying that they're using measures 
of self-compassion and showing that there's an increase somehow in a person's sense of kindness toward themselves or generosity that's increasing, even though there's no self-compassion intervention happening. The whole self-compassion construct is difficult, but that was one of the, the only constructs that were out there to tap into the self and how the self is processed. Uh, unfortunately, it really just spoke to the lack of measures or assays that we have to measure how the self is constructed. There's just a need for more of these types of measures and more emphasis on looking at the self and how it's constructed and how it changes through mindfulness practice. Because self-compassion, it is, I think, conflated with self-esteem. Its major components are self-kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. And it's really how you treat yourself when you're feeling some sort of emotional discomfort, right? And common humanity gets a little bit more at the compassion as we know it from the Buddhist perspective. Compassion is this affective feeling of caring for one who is suffering in addition to that motivation to relieve that suffering. And it's typically uh, has nothing to do with the self. (laughs) That was already intrinsically accorded to the self. There was no question about self-worthiness. Right. People often fail to realize anybody who's practicing compassion from the Buddhist perspective is already highly trained in terms of their stability of their attention. They've gone through many stages of shamatha, for example. They're very stable mind and able to do very complex types of awareness practice where there is a non-dual experience. And that is not a simple practice for any lay individual. I agree. And so when you look at MBIs, these eight-week models and how they affect self-compassion, it makes a lot of sense that self-compassion changes a lot significantly as a result of these practices because we're so self-infatuated that that's where we start with our motivations to help ourselves, not others. Our overemphasis as a contemporary society and consumer culture that we want mindfulness for ourselves. We want to reduce our stress, improve our attention, and be more kind to ourselves so we can be the better person. In these measures, when they see increased what they call self-compassion, it's not actually increased self-compassion. It's a decrease in self-loathing that they are translating as an increase in self-compassion. I partly suspect this because when this comes up in my office, I never use the term self-compassion. What I usually do is I point to the fact that whatever mean thoughts they are having about themselves are so distorted and untrue because they are a human being like anyone else. And all the respect and care they accord to everyone else is just automatically not accorded to oneself. So when that kind of negative processing lessons, which we know mindfulness does a great job of, what arises is more of, right, actually, I am okay. Like I said, of those thousands of studies that are out there, only 19 focused specifically on the self. These are the practices that are prescribed not as a prescription that if you don't do these, you can't get there. It's Here's a list of practices or paths to follow, which can help you move in that direction. But we don't know which ones are going to be the best for any one individual. You can ask Sokni Rinpoche or Minta Rinpoche, and they might say, well, awareness, that's all you need. But not only your teachers, but your, your therapists and your integrative health practitioners are going to be the ones that are going to best assay which seem to be best suited for you. Like you said, 
when you do your one-on-one session, you can assay what this person needs, right? Through your own clinical skills. Right. But in order to do that, you also have to have your own practice. It's true. I am unusual, but I'm not that unusual. No, you are unusual. <laughs> You're extraordinary, <laughs> really. There are a lot of mental health professionals who have long-term meditation practices and on their own, you know, I've also investigated yoga and Qigong and it's not that unusual these days, particularly here in the Bay Area. My interest in translating these things as actual skill sets for patients to use, that might be unusual. Yeah. Like you said, it's becoming more of a standard for treatment. It's also now being used specifically to treat our clinical providers. One of the biggest problems we have is burnout. People talk about this empathic over-arousal. You can't expect your patients to heal um, or to improve in their outcomes if you can't carry your own practice, which will help improve the outcomes in your patients. Just rapport alone is important. And if you can't generate that human connection that's essential to contemplative practice, it's going to be very hard for you to have an effect on your patient's outcome because they need to have the faith in you. You need to give them that faith and through human connection. One of the studies that we're doing actually in our lab, it's in our pipeline, is to really look at the space the practitioner or teacher can create to facilitate outcomes. So whether it's a sacred space, so being in a temple, or just being in the room with someone and how that information is transmitted. So transmission of method can be done just by being in the room with somebody versus say something like a mobile app. Is there differences in how these types of practices can be transmitted just by proximity alone or even in more sacred types of settings like in a temple? You know, this whole burnout thing with providers is a sticky wick. One third of my patients has always been physicians. This whole endeavor to deal with physician burnout is a double-edged sword. They're not actually looking at the way physicians are being required to practice. They're saying, we're going to give you these skills so that you can tolerate the way we're requiring you to practice now which is not really conducive to exactly what you just pointed out, the patient interaction, the feeling of calm, having time, safety, really being able to listen. And frankly, many of the physicians I work with had severe traumatic experiences during their medical training. Right. The model has been grit. Yeah. You know, pull up your bootstraps and deal with it or get out. Well, I'll be very interested in the results of that study people now are looking at how treating the providers will improve outcomes. If mindfulness training, mindfulness compassion training to healthcare providers, does it improve outcomes in the patients? That is a question that hasn't really been effectively answered. Intuitively, I think we all believe that it does help. um, And there's some preliminary data suggesting it can. There's like one burnout scale that everyone uses. For those who are listening, burnout really refers to this sort of empathic over-arousal through clinical practice, you're seeing people who are in pain and having a hard time with your own emotion regulation and the arousal associated with that. And so that burnout that people report, I can't even come in today. I'm so affected by what happened yesterday. It happens to up to 75% of clinical providers. And that's a problem that hasn't been addressed. We've been 
kind of all over the place, but there's so many different entryways or entry points for showing how contemplative practices can work in a medical setting. You know, we've focused a lot on basic mechanisms. For example, we use neurophysiology to measure brain responses, electrophysiological responses to uh, emotion, emotional stimuli. We're starting to look at even what's happening before this conscious awareness. So you can look at responses to emotional stimuli. What you see are differences in people who've gone through an eight-week training protocol like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and that relates to improved outcomes. We look at something called event-related potentials, mm-hmm. and that is really just a, a brain response. So your brain will have a response to a, an emotional s- stimulus. So for example, Poppy Schoenberg, who is a senior scientist in our lab, has looked at patients with ADHD and, and depression. And in ADHD patients, she's done what, what's called a go-no-go task, meaning we're going to give you a string of letters, and your job is to respond to every letter that's presented every 50 milliseconds or so. The goal of the task is every time you saw the letter X, you withhold the response. You can do this with emotional words or emotional pictures as well. And what you find is that you can press a button quickly and accurately, and then when you see an error and you hit the button when you weren't supposed to, that is called an error. That could be an error of commission. And when you look at the brain response in response to those errors, those people with ADHD typically don't show a very enhanced brain response to the error, suggesting that there's not a lot of monitoring of those errors happening. After training, what you see is actual significant change in the amplitude of the response of your brain to the error that you just made before you even have awareness that you made the error. Your brain response reflects early stages of error or conflict monitoring. You've monitored that you've made an error such that you can correct it um, or be more present and aware of making those mistakes in the future. And then later, your brain responds as a form of evaluation. Oh, I just messed up. Most ADHD patients don't have that typical brain response that they are even reflecting on that they made an error. They just keep going. Hmm. Whereas someone trained in mindfulness uh, who has ADHD shows a brain response that they have some form of evaluation even later reflecting that there is some not only early non-conscious processing that's helping regulate how we make these type of inhibitory responses, then there's some secondary evaluation of it going on. What's interesting here is when they have the capacity to recognize, are they then getting stuck in affective stickiness around what a terrible person they are, that they made a mistake, which is what a depressive mind would do or not? We found that in a different study with fibromyalgia patients, I think I've talked to you about that one before, where you can look at these later stages of processing where they have enough time to fixate on the emotional word, and we were able to determine whether or not they got stuck. Patients with fibromyalgia who were given mindfulness training, after the training, they responded much more rapidly after seeing a negative pain-related word. There may be more processing, but they're able to let it go much more quickly. So would I be correct in saying in these cases, 
the ADHD patients, maybe there's more ACC processing. So error detection, maybe more on board in yeah. that neural network. Correct. But there isn't more PCC processing. So there isn't the negative selfing around the error detection. It's, oh, I made an error and there's no stickiness. It's exactly right. That is sort of the summary of what we're seeing with the changes in mindfulness. Faster detection, a recognition of error, rapid letting go. And that would be the Buddhist methodology, wouldn't it, without yeah. the Buddhism? These eight-week models are showing objectively that there are benefits. There's just not a lot of data to make any sort of firm conclusions yet. You know, these are all small studies, and they're promising, but we need to continue to do the work to determine who they're going to best benefit for. My suspicion is that in general, this neural network mechanism we're talking about probably is the core of most of the changes in a lot of the maladies that you happen to be looking at. The low back pain studies that you're doing now, there must be some of that. So one of our collaborators here, Steve Brule, um, just got an R01 to look at the specific and non-specific mechanisms of pain through two different treatment methods for chronic low back pain. One is mindfulness. Other one is uh, spinal manipulation therapy, which is shown to be effective for low back pain. There's some controversy in the field. Most reductions in pain and how we sort of modulate pain have been suggested to be endogenous opioid mediated. We have chemicals inside of our brain that are released to help modulate the opiate system to reduce the experience of pain for ourselves. So whenever there's a painful stimulus, we release these endogenous opioids and pain is reduced. And Fadal Zaydan has been a pioneer in this field to show that mindfulness does not work through opioidergic mechanisms. It works through some other mechanism. We think it relates to, just like you were saying, more monitoring and less ruminative type of processing, a lot of sustained attention. And what our study is going to do is not only try to show that for chronic pain patients, he showed it with acute pain, but we can also look at whether there are non-specific mechanisms like increased mindfulness as a trait or less catastrophizing as a trait as well. These are self-report measures. So we can say, as a result of meditation practice, we ruminate less, we feel feelings of helplessness less, we don't magnify our problems as much, and that may be what's controlling for why mindfulness training improves pain outcomes. And as you and your colleagues have already said, all that equals equanimity. Right. Yes. It's the yep. conceptual way of thinking what is happening. How do we experience something that's difficult like pain without being reactive or have it mediated by some internal traditional pain mechanisms, which is how the body responds to pain typically. And that's what you'll see more often in, say, a placebo or Spinal manipulation therapy, for example, may engage those endogenous opioid mechanisms to reduce the pain. But mindfulness probably doesn't. It's much more focused on mental control and stabilization. What I wish was happening was that the practices were split out and measured against each other so that a cohort would only be doing sitting, focused meditation practice. Another cohort would be doing Tai Chi or Qigong or yoga practice. So that we stopped saying mindfulness, we started talking about the practices we are delivering because 
as you said, I get to pick and choose yeah. based on what somebody's experiencing, which of those practices is going to give them more bang to the buck. Part of the problem is what is a mindfulness-based intervention? So, right. And in this case, we're not even using the eight-week model. We're using one-on-one training. Great. So this is going to be something that we've been working on with Jim Carmody, develop a curriculum for one-on-one practice, you know, which shouldn't be dismissed. Someone like you, I'm sure you are an advocate for one-on-one training. It depends. If somebody's just going to deliver the MBSR curricula one-on-one, I don't think that's going to have that much difference because I think the group helps those people much more than the practices. Being around the other people who are also in pain mediates so much of what they're calling self-compassion. I actually think that would be worse. Those are what we would call the non-specific effects. So being in a group alone, it doesn't matter what you do. If you just read a book together, that would be helpful. Or you can have a charismatic teacher like John Kabat-Zinn who just hangs out with you and that in itself is an effect on your outcomes. <laughs> if you were sitting with a patient who had chronic low back pain, but you knew the etiology of that chronic low back pain was in some kind of traumatic experience that the body is holding in the form of bracing, you might be choosing an embodied contemplative practice rather than a focused meditation practice to allow the entire system to unbrace both physically as well as mentally, like for instance, a Qigong intervention, which will absolutely do that much better than focused meditation will do it. Right. And which is actually probably the next step because I would hypothesize that indeed an embodied practice like yoga, Tai Chi or Qigong would be better for chronic low back pain. In fact, right now we're offering yoga for chronic low back pain to all employees at Vanderbilt as, and it's covered by your insurance. It's now part of you know a concerted effort by the administration at Vanderbilt to help deal with this problem without prescribing opiates. And we are monitoring outcomes. And I just think that this is the kind of mindfulness research we need at this point in order to be able to say things that are specific and really useful rather than mindfulness is great for X, Y, Z, which honestly at this point doesn't really mean much. And that's why I'm so excited that you're at Vanderbilt. And the Osha Center, which allows us to focus on integrative health. I think the field is still young. A lot of work to be done, both at the basic science level, from the clinical trials, you know, trying to be pragmatic about what works, what doesn't, and why. I think that's where much of our is headed, trying to better understand what a mindfulness-based intervention is, how it's best delivered, what's the minimum dosage, which population it's going to receive, or how to optimize benefits. From a basic science point of view, I think we're still very much interested in what are those mechanisms driving self-transformation, you know, as we understand the contemplative path towards the ultimate unconditional love and kindness towards all of humanity in improving human connection. How do we track those changes? We're doing some very innovative stuff using multiple people in a room hooked up with EEG and look at how they may resonate with each other. That's exciting. You know, what are those neural substrates that we can tie to please Evan Thompson and all the embodied scientists out there? I think we really are trying to tie those neural substrates or neural correlates with the phenomenological changes associated with meditation practice. Who better to do that than you, since you already have a framework, the SART framework? If only you could be on the NIH review panels as well, Lisa. I don't think I would enjoy that. 
they would only frustrate me probably. I think the most important thing is that we can try to, together with my cohort of contemplative scientists, try to set the right standards, um, set the research agendas, and try to give a prescription of best practices for doing this type of science. Because there's a lot of bad science out there too. This is all related to what it's like to be a flourishing human being. We're all trying to move towards that direction. In a flourishing culture that's more awake yeah. to its own actions, which yeah. ultimately really all the practices are for that. If you're interested in following our research specifically here at Vanderbilt, go to contemplativeneurosciences.com. Although we are in desperate need of revamping that website still resides at Harvard on their servers. If you are a web designer, let me know. We're trying to port all that great information to Vanderbilt. We try to be very reflective of what's happening in the field um, through, say, our Twitter feeds and all of our social media outlets. Keep up to date with what's happening from our lab and uh, be sure to help move the needle forward in bringing contemplative practices into an integrative health uh, model. I cannot thank you enough. Really great connecting again. Thanks for listening to today's show. The Groundless Ground podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. To find out more about this episode, see a list of upcoming guests, or get in touch, visit groundlessground.com. Now let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on The Groundless Ground.